The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Clem Newton-Brown, the CEO and founder of Skyports, a company developing landing infrastructure for air taxis and freight drones. Clem is a former planning barrister, a small business innovator, a former member of parliament, and at one stage was the youngest ever deputy Lord Mayor at the city of Melbourne. Welcome to the show, Clem. Thanks for having me, Jess. Jess, you missed out that he's got an Order of Australia as well. I did. Sorry about that. <laughs> Clem. Uh, don't, worry, don't, don't, don't worry about that. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I certainly had a bit of an, an eclectic uh, career, that's for sure. And Clem, can you tell us what led to your current role at Skyports? Yeah, sure. Look, Skyports is a business which I, I set up about five years ago. And uh, uh, and prior to that, I was running a planning consultancy um, called Whitemark. And uh, uh, just to sort of go backwards uh, or start at the beginning, I, start, I started off as a solicitor, went to the bar, then got interested in local government. And I was uh, councillor at the city of Melbourne and then uh, ran water taxis and, and cafes on the river and floating marquees and things. And uh, while well, still being a, a barrister and a and a local politician and then ended up in uh, state politics and then lost my seat and then uh, started a, a planning consultancy rather than going back to the bar. So that that was sort of a, a very quick recap of uh, 20 or 30 years of, uh, of a, a very uh, eclectic career. Um, uh, and while I was working as a planning consultant, one of my clients was Microflight Helicopters that has the helipad on the Yarra. And we were trying to get government to talk to, talk to us about... Uh, uh, issues about the longevity of their their license there, and we're having a lot of trouble getting uh, anybody to meet with us. But uh, Uber Air uh, about five years ago started talking about um, uh, rideshare aerial rideshare air taxis, and uh, we were astounded that they came to town and the red carpet got rolled out for them, and uh, they wouldn't talk to an existing business that employed forty people and had twenty aircraft flying daily. Uh, but they were talking to this other this uh, Uber mob from America about flying saucers. So uh, I was pretty sceptical, but um, I actually set up Skyports as a bit of a Trojan horse for my client to get a seat at the table because I thought, well, if, uh, if uh, these air taxes are coming and everybody's uh, bending over backwards to make them happen, then they're going to need uh, uh, landing sites. And uh, so it sort of worked. We ended up, um, you know, Skyports ended up being part of the bid and we helped the Victorian government with the uh, uh, getting Melbourne chosen by Uber, and that's that's since all fallen by the wayside. But because um, Uber's now moved on to other things, but uh, but that was the the genesis of it. And uh, and uh, you know, once I got into it, I realised that this is a pretty exciting area, and there's a, a lot of opportunities um, and a, and a lot of work to be done uh, in a strategic and policy sense to um, uh, to make this new industry take off. There seems to be a common thread, Clem, in in most of these roles that you've you've spoken about, where um, you break through or have had experience in breaking through regulatory barriers. Um, is that something that you enjoy? I'm guessing it is. Yeah, it is. Look, uh, it, I do enjoy it. Look, um, you know, for example, Ponyfish Island, which uh, uh, I originally started as a little cafe, uh, unlicensed cafe, 
on the river there. That that took me two years to get the permits through for that, and uh, really enjoyed the process of uh, you know finding a way through to get a cool idea happening. Um, and look, you know, that's just one example. Uh, all I've done a lot of sort of uh, pretty out there businesses on uh, floating on barges and on islands and things, and um, you know the, the regulatory side of things and. Uh, drawing on my sort of planning and legal background uh, has been you know, uh, a challenge I've enjoyed. And uh, yeah, so, you know, with this, uh, you know, setting up a whole new industry, uh, you know, re revolutionising the way we move people and goods uh, was you know, a pretty major, m majorly difficult challenge. And I thought, well, you know, if, if uh, you know, Who's better qualified than me with uh, the the background that I've got with uh, you know uh, experience in planning and law and tourism and uh, and crazy ideas? Helped you with some aha, uh -huh, if I can call it that, moments of sort of spotting something that's you know something new that needs to come. Do you do you, do you think that's that training was good for you? Uh yeah. Look, I I think uh, well, I think just in terms of. Um, Working out what the problem, what the issues were, were, and the solutions to the to to the problem of, of trying to get this whole new industry uh, happening, and I suppose that that challenge uh, att attracted me. And uh, and yeah, look, you know, the experience that I've had in the past, uh, you know, from you know, deal whether it's dealing with uh, you know clients in court or or, or my own projects, um, uh, you know, being a planning lawyer is all about. You know, using the planning system to try to get what you want, whether it's to stop stop a development or or approve a development, and um, uh, and so you know, working within the parameters of of the uh, the planning schemes, and uh, and then also the the other thing that was interest of interest was the you know, the political and the community license side of things, and, and that that side of planning is also uh, of interest to me as a as a former politician. Um, you know, if you don't have uh, the political support, then uh, you can be sure that the politicians will run a mile from anything that's innovative. So you know, that, that side of things is also hugely important in this industry. And before we talk about Skyports, can we talk briefly about your parliamentary career as a member for Paran? For non-Melbourne listeners, this is an inner city area within Melbourne, which has um, experienced great, great levels of gentrification and is fairly progressive. Um, you subsequently lost your seat to the Greens, as I understand. How was it being a member for Parliament? Did you enjoy the process? Oh, yeah, being a member of Parliament is, is just a, an amazing job. It's uh, yeah, no no day, no two days are the same. Uh, you've got the opportunity to actually make a difference if you choose to. Uh, unfortunately, many people get there and they're so happy to be there they they forget why they they wanted to get elected. Um, but uh, I certainly found that it was, you know, an opportunity to, uh, you know, to do, you know, good things for the community, to to help people uh, get their their issues heard. Um, I was lucky enough to be the chair of the law reform committee, so um, yeah, there were a number of inquiries that we did, which resulted in you know laws that were were you know, world first, um, and you know, that was uh, pretty satisfying to be. Part of a, something, uh, you know, one of the, the, the big inquiry was the donor conceived um, inquiry, which uh, resulted in people who didn't have rights to know their, their uh, who their fathers were or their biological fathers were, were able to get that information. Um, and that's now a law which is spread across Australia, and there's now other jurisdictions around the world that are doing that as well. So, so that was, you know, amazing to be part of a part of that and and seeing an idea that made sense, but nobody. Uh, there was nobody there to, to, to provide a voice for this group of um, 
young people who were had fallen through the cracks in the in the in the law. So um, you know, to be able to have the the privileged position that I had of being in Parliament and to actually you know be their voice was um, you know it was fantastic. But uh, anyway, it was it was only one term I was there, unfortunately, being a a marginal seat politician is uh, is not a, a great career choice. <laughs> oh, oh, that was great. That's a great summary, um, Glenn. Skyports, how would you describe it in 100 words? I'm sorry, 100 words. See how you go. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I can speak and count at the same time, but um, but just in, in, let's say in a nutshell, um, uh, what 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 we're trying to do is break the nexus between aviation and airports. So, um this is about these new aircraft, the electric air taxis, which are coming, and we'll, we'll get into talking about that soon, I, I presume. But, uh, but this is about providing the infrastructure for those uh, air taxis. So at the moment, uh, you know, we've got helipads and airports that is the existing aviation infrastructure. But this whole industry is dependent on, um, on breaking that nexus so that other property owners can become mini airports. And once you've got that, then you can start having... Um, uh, you know, uh, aerial transport on demand. And what technological breakthroughs have allowed Skyports? Uh, well, it's a bit like Wright Brothers days out there at the moment. So there's probably about six or 700 aircrafts in development. Um, most people just think this is a bit of a fantasy. Uh, let me assure you it's not. There are, there's, these aircraft have been flying for, the front runners have been flying for, in some cases for, for over a decade. Um, the, there's a handful of front runners that their aircraft are going through commercial certification, which is a, a, it's a very big step between getting an aircraft to fly and getting it to fly safely for passenger transport. And then we've got a couple of examples of, of the front runners uh, being you know, probably ready in the next year or two to, uh, to start commercial operations. So, so there's, there's no doubt that these electric, uh, electric they're essentially electric powered helicopters uh, but their their designs, uh, you know, helicopter hasn't really changed much in 50 or 60 years. Whereas these are uh, an amazing machines. They're they're far more aerodynamic. They've got uh, wings built into their structure so that they're basically gliding once they get to altitude. Um, there's lots of different designs, uh, but um, uh, you know the the what's what's uh, certain is that these aircraft will fly uh, commercially very soon. Uh, Probably in the, Olymp the Olympics next year in Paris, we've got five Verda ports that will be operating an aircraft called the Volocopter, uh, which I saw flying at the, at the Paris Air Show a few months ago. Um, so, so yeah, look, there's no doubt it's coming. The, the issue is, will we have the, the matrix of Verda ports to enable a more of an on-demand uh, aerial service, or will these just be uh, you know, quieter, uh, cleaner helicopters? And, Clem, you mentioned the term Verda ports. Can you just sort of explain that? And who came up with the term? I mean, it's a great, it's a great experience. Yeah, look, I've been involved in this for five years or so, and it's interesting how the terminology has changed. Look, people used to talk about urban air mobility, and uh, and that's now changed. I think NASA changed uh, to advanced air mobility, and that's now the phrase that everybody uses. And and that's because this isn't just about uh, you know jumping around on city rooftops. <coughs> it's um. <coughs> You know, regional air mobility is going to be a very big part of it as well. So advanced air mobility sort of is the catch-all phrase. It's still a bit of a, a, a mouthful. Um, uh, as far as the landing sites goes, look, um, five years ago, Sky, a Skyport was the name that was in common usage. So I put a Z on it and trademarked it and 
thought I was being very clever. And uh, and as it's turned out, Vertiport has morphed into being the, the standard that everybody's used in the last few years. So I probably I probably put Vertiport with a Z on the end if I was to do it again now. But um, but still, look, you know, Skyport is a you know that's a that's a um, uh, you know, people understand what it is, but but Vertiport is the the name that people use now. And uh, the other the other term you'll hear is EV toll, which is again is a mouthful. It's an electric vertical takeoff on landing aircraft. So that's what generally what people in the industry will use. But I tend to use electric air taxi, which um, uh, is not a very precise definition, but everybody understands what it means. It's an electric powered small aircraft. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Most people would understand, um, you know, I'm thinking about Melbourne in particular as a as a local example. We currently have a number of helicopters that um, access the city on a on a, probably an hourly basis, or probably even more regularly than that. Generally speaking, though, the helicopters are landing um, either at hospitals or along the, the Yarra River, or on probably a select number of um, buildings across the city. How does this differ? Are we talking about having vertiports on every building or is it um, in key destinations? What's the difference? I, look, I think there'll be, we'll see a progression. So when the aircraft come, you'll see basically the helicopters will be replaced with electric helicopters essentially. So And that'll be a great new story. I mean, you're getting rid of your decarbonising aviation. You're, they're, they're quieter, uh, they're greener uh, and and you know, it, it's a, it's a good outcome to to stop using helicopters for tourism work. Now, they, you will always need helicopters, I think, for these things like firefighting and search and rescue. And uh, um, uh, but but for, for the short tourism trips, I think we'll see these aircraft will in the next within the next five years. You'll you'll probably see most tourism uh, aircraft are these eVTOL aircraft. Um, um, but uh, in terms of the vertiports. I think you know initially, you know the helicopters will be replaced with these these EV tolls, and they'll just fly as they've been flying. So they'll fly out to you know wineries in the Yarra Valley for lunch, or go to see the Twelve Apostles, or or the Grand Prix, or, or Melbourne Racing uh, uh, Carnival. Um, but then, uh, if that's all it does, it's not really a revolution. I mean, it's it's good in that where it's a cleaner, greener aircraft. Uh, but to actually be a revolution, we need to have. Uh, lots of different landing places, and that's really dependent on the on the community supporting this. So we've got good government support. So um, federal government, Department of Infrastructure, CASA, the air regulator, some state governments and some local governments um, are also supportive. But but importantly, federally and from the air regulator perspective, they are basically preparing the skies for this. And this is not just piloted aircraft; it's unpiloted aircraft for people as well. So. That'll be in the second wave, but eventually you'll be flying in these aircraft without pilots. Um, so uh, in terms of the landing sites, it just depends on what the community wants. And I, I would see that we'll start with the low-hanging fruit, which will probably be industrial areas where you know, you'll have a vertiport in a place where you put all your smelly, noxious uh, uh, industry. Uh, who's going to worry about a vertiport there? 
Uh, and then once you've done that, you've broken the nexus between aviation and airports. And I would then see that hopefully the community will push to say, well, why do I have to drive out to this industrial estate? Why can't I get a, a an air taxi from the, the top of the car park at Chadston? And there'll be places like that, I think, which will then then start to be um, established for vertiports. And then we'll see you know, new developments, greenfield sites where they'll design in uh, vertiports just as they, they'll put in a, a train station or a bus stop. Liam, the, the, the aircraft themselves, you've, you've touched on them. Some of the world leaders, I understand, are Joby and Boeing. What are these craft like in terms of capacity? You mentioned they might not have a pilot. What sort of size are we talking about? Are we talking about like a like a, a family car? Um, yeah, look, I used to say these aircraft are, uh, you know, are smaller and lighter than helicopters, but Having seen some of the the front runners in real life at the at some air shows around the world recently, that's not the case. The the the, the passenger ones such as Archer and Joby, uh, they are very big. You know, they're as big as a helicopter, um, and they've got multiple multiple rotors. Um, uh, the front runners generally uh, you're talking sort of four to six passengers, um, uh, but you, you've got other people who are trying to get. Uh, uh, you, know, you have ideas for electric electric aircraft that are carrying more people, but not many. There's probably only one or two like that, but there's quite a few that are smaller than the six-seaters. So, uh, for example, the Volocopter, a German model, which has been flying for a long time uh, now, and that's the one that they'll be using in Paris next year at the Olympics, that's only a two-seat. So it's a it's a passenger and uh, and a pilot. So not a lot of fun to go for a, a, a joyride by yourself with a pilot you don't know. But um, but you know they, they just want to be first, and uh, and I think they'll they've got a bigger model that they're they're working on after that. But it goes right down to single seaters. Look, there's a, an aircraft called the Jetson, which is basically like a, a giant drone, uh, and it's just a, a single seater, and and that's um, that's just been approved as a sport uh, aircraft. So. Uh, much lower standard than a commercial aircraft because these are the sort of things that you know, people can you can buy and fly yourself around it just like you can an ultralight aircraft. So they're they're not particularly safe compared to a uh, you know, a commercially certified aircraft. But certainly you, you can um, you know, they are available. Those little ones I think they're about a hundred thousand dollars and um, uh, they've just been approved in Italy I think and and I think uh, you know we'll see that that them approved around the world. But but that's not really what my what uh, you know, Skyports is about is really about um, uh, landing sites for for passenger and cargo rather than you know sport aircraft. And Glenn, what about the cost of these? Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about the cost for passengers of of using these sorts of um, transport options. Has that sort of been fleshed out in Australia or mostly only overseas at this point? Yeah, look, there's been a lot of talk about this. And look, when Uber first started promoting this idea, they said it's going to be, you know, you're going to be able to fly the same price as getting in an Uber black um, uh, you know, car. And I think $3 a passenger mile was the figure that's been um, uh, put out there. I, I'm a bit pessimistic about the cost. I think that these aircraft will actually be as expensive as helicopters to begin with. Um, you know, they're not going to be cheap. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to be probably more expensive than helicopters, the initial initial run given that just all the technology has gone into them um, but I think over time we'll see the cost of the aircraft coming down once they start churning them out in, in great numbers I think um, the, the cost of the aircraft will come down and then um, uh, the cost of running the aircraft will be significantly less as well because 
uh, you don't have uh, all the, the moving parts that you have in a in an internal combustion engine. So you know, electric motors are very simple, um, and you know, the maintenance costs will be uh, significantly less. Uh, and then the really big one that that brings the cost down is when the pilot comes out, and that's I, I would say we'd be into you know, ten years forward from now. Um, uh, we'll see um, you know, pilotless aircraft. And that and that takes out the uh, the cost of the pilot. So I think we'll see eventually. Um, uh, initially, they'll be just as expensive as helicopters. So if you're paying, you know, whatever you pay to go for lunch at a winery, you know, with, with a helicopter from Melbourne, it'll probably be the same uh, when they change over to these other other EV toll aircraft. But I think over time that 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 will come down. And um, uh, in terms of how low it goes, look, I I would be surprised if it's ever going to be. Uh, as cheap as getting an Uber car, I think um, uh, you know it'll it'll be a, a premium form of transport, but it'll be something that people uh, might not do as a regular form of transport, but it might be something that you would do when uh, you know the, the uh, it's worth it for the uh, the time saving that uh, that can be achieved. Clem, we'll we'll put some on our episode notes. We'll <clears throat> put some YouTube links about some of the main manufacturers, but. Are they a bit like spinners in that movie Blade Runner? Um, do, you, do you know the movie I'm talking about? The spinners in yeah, Blade Runner. Yeah, look, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many different designs. It really is like Wright Brothers days out there. You know, there, there's just so many designs out there, uh, and you only need to Google it or YouTube it, and you, and you'll see, you know, see them all out there. But um, yeah, they range from you know uh, multi-copters to um, and with the it's just basically a, like a helicopter with lots and lots of uh, blades. You've got others that are, are ducted fans along the wing, so it's like a whole lot of uh, hair dryers on the on the along the edge of the wing that uh, uh, that lifts the aircraft. Um, you've got others that have got have lifting propellers and then pushing propellers. There are others that just have one set of propellers and they tilt. So they, they, they tilt when they're going, once you get to height and you're going horizontally and they'll tilt forward like a, a normal plane. So, so yeah, there's, there's so many different um, uh, configurations, but I think the, um, so it's quite exciting. I think we'll, we'll probably see that there'll be some um, designs that end up being proven to be the most viable. I mean, I think we're sort of seeing that now and it seems to be that having, um, uh, a, a wing incorporated into the body of the aircraft seems to be where most are heading because that saves a lot of energy. You're not using the propellers to keep the aircraft in the air once you're, you're, you're flying horizontally. Um, so I think that that seems to be a, a common common theme amongst the front runners. Um, but uh, but yeah, look, there's there's uh, there's you know, some of the biggest aviation companies in the world. You know, Boeing, Bell, Embraer, Airbus. You know, they've all got um, prototypes that they're working on. The, the, the Boeing aircraft is called WISK, W-I-S-K, uh, and look, they are going straight to autonomy. They're never going to have a pilot in their aircraft. So they've got a company the size of Boeing um, saying that, you know, we are designing a new aircraft. Uh, I, I think it's fair enough to, to conclude that it's going to happen. I mean, these companies build aircraft that safely, tra uh, you know, transport millions of people around the world every year. And, uh, but what we're talking about here is a, a smaller aircraft to do shorter hops uh, with electric propulsion. So, um, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, anyone who's doubting it, I would say don't. Um, so, Clem, it's a good time for us to get ready for this. And that's what Skyports does, sorry, is seeking to do. You, you've developed various model vertiports. Can you describe these sort of footprints and what they are? Yeah, look, 
I mean, and the good thing about inventing something new is that you can be the expert just because you say you are and do do more work than anybody else. So, uh, so we're we've actually uh, I've got a number of consultants I work with, and and we're basically just you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, dreaming it up as we go and, and improving things, improving designs, trying to work out what what would work, uh, what we need. So we partner with people like. You know, um, Battery, uh, battery charging companies, um, you know, um, uh, booking systems, air traffic management um, people. The industry is absolutely huge. It's it's a it's a huge opportunity for so many different industries. And there's people who are developing expertise in all these areas. And um, uh, so yeah, it's 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 a, a very very exciting time to be uh, you know trying to try to work out how how to fit into the ecosystem. And look, I've started with, um, and look, you know, the industry started with you know, very um, elaborate sort of sci-fi uh, towers for uh, for vertiports you know, on tops of city buildings and things. And um, uh, in recent times, the reality check has come in, and people have realised, well, these actually can't be super expensive. If if uh, if we're going to keep the cost of these aircraft and flying these aircraft down, the vertiports can't be a huge expense. So. Um, a lot of people swung the other way, and and basically, you know, fairly pedestrian shipping container type vertiports. Um, uh, and uh, what we're trying to do at Skyports is to work, sort of, um, realistically, but also to evoke the the, the futuristic um, uh, you know, images of the, this new industry uh, within the infrastructure without it being hugely expensive. So. I work with a very talented architect called um, Rafael Contreras, who is uh, one of the lead designers with Zaha Hadid on the Beijing airport, and um, and he's really into these curved aluminium shapes and monocoque aluminium construction, and uh, we've designed a few different vertiports. So we, we did did one which was like a mini airport uh, for Caribbean Park in Victoria, uh, and that was a uh, three active pads and six charging bays. Um, and then we realised that that building is probably going to be a you know a fifty million dollar building, and you, you can't. You might have a, a few of those around a city, but every vertiport can't be that. So, so then I uh, did a very small, uh, like a like a, a lima bean type, uh, essentially a waiting room with some charging facilities, where I thought that would be quite a good um, little uh, vertiport for private owner, private owners who have a have a site that they want to activate. Um, and then, uh, most, or most recently, we uh, we did something in between, which was a, a public vertiport, uh, but not as big as the one at Caribbean Park. So, a uh, fairly compact footprint uh, with one active vertiport and two charging bays that we uh, uh, designed for Batman Park in uh, on the Yarra in Melbourne. Um, and we've got another one we're going to be releasing in a couple of weeks' time at Dubai Air Show, which is a, a single elevated pad. So. That'll be a 30 meter by 30 meter space where you can squeeze that into a a tighter spot, but um, still have passenger facilities underneath. So, so you know, there's lots of different designs we're playing with, and um, at the moment nobody's building anything yet. Uh, and I think the real uh, reality check will come when when we actually get the first property developers or governments who decide we're actually going to do this. Uh, and I think that's when everybody's mind gets much more focused on on you know the costs and what needs to be there, what doesn't need to be there, and um, uh, and that's probably where we're sort of heading uh, coming up in the in the in the, ne the next year. I would expect that we'll start to see people wanting to actually future proof their sites by building vertiports.
And Clem, uh, you've, you've obviously touched on a couple of the um, advantages in these models, but what are the associated amenity impacts with these types of new aircraft and, and vertiports? Obviously, if we're talking about the traditional models, um, particularly from a planning perspective, I can imagine there would be enormous amenity impacts that would need to be considered. Is it the same with these? Uh, yeah, well, it is, but we can't, we don't, we, I'm expecting it to be less uh, than helicopters, but how, 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 how much less, we're, we're not sure. Um, see, these aircraft uh, are still in development. Uh, there are some that are flying. You can see them on YouTube. I've, I've seen a couple flying. Um, they are significantly quieter than helicopters. Um, I think uh, the Joby was measured at 100 times quieter than helicopter. Uh, but it's not silent, though. So it's, it's um, and it, it, you've still got, uh, you know, an aircraft in the air as well. It's not, they're not invisible. Um, and so th the community acceptance side of things is going to be really what makes or breaks this, because if we can't get vertiports in new locations, then uh, the industry can't really fulfill what it was set out to achieve in terms of you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, transport on in the air on demand. Um, so uh, I think we'll probably see the aircraft, they'll, they'll start flying from existing helipads and airports. And I think that's when the community and the politicians can then say, well, actually, these are different to helicopters. They're, people like them. They want, they're, they're actually pushing to, to be able to have them at you know, shopping centers and things to be able to uh, you know, use them. Uh, they're priced at a point where uh, they're not seen as just rich people's toys. These are actually, you know, this is something that you know, everybody could use, maybe not every day, but you know, they can see the, the benefit for, them, for themselves. Um, the environmental benefits uh, and and you know, also the uh, humanitarian benefits. If, if people can see that, well, this is this is saving lives. You know, we're, we're getting we're having we've got vertiports that can be used as bases for um, air ambulances and things like that. Um, all these sort of things will, will come together, but it's 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 it is very unknown, and it's um, you know the industry is uh, you know, ten billion dollars has gone into the aircraft over the last sort of three years or so, and. You know, everybody's very bullish about the the uh, this industry, but it's it is dependent on having these vertiports and and really nobody nobody knows. I mean, we do know that people don't like drones; they find them annoying. Uh, you know, they're, they're worried about the safety of them dropping on their heads. They're worried about the the, the privacy issues. Um, they don't like the noise of, of drones. Helicopters are very unpopular. They're seen as rich people's toys, and they're they're very noisy. Um, and so we do have a big a, a, a a big hill to climb in terms of getting the, the public to accept uh, and want these new aircraft. Uh, and it may not be until we've actually got the aircraft flying that we, we get that uh, that uh, social license. And Clem, what, what can authorities, particularly planning authorities, do to help this new industry? Oh, look, this is this is my, my pet subject. Um, it, it frustrates the hell out of me as an ex-politician. I, I can see that um, yeah, this is going to be a multi-trillion-dollar industry, and uh, you know, the front runners will see enormous amounts of investment flowing into jurisdictions where where uh, the environment is conducive to the industry flourishing. So, nowhere in the world has anybody actually set out the rules and regulations for vertiports. We know that having a new helipad is generally very difficult to get approvals for. If you're within 500 metres of a sensitive use, like a, a dwelling, uh, you know, it's almost impossible to get a new helipad. So it rules out helipads really anywhere. That's why we don't see helipads 
other than a few sort of historic locations or hospitals and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, if these aircraft are quieter, they're more acceptable, they're greener, um, then, you know, I think there's a chance that the community will decide that they, um, they want them. Um, and, uh, and if they want them, then what the, what the politicians need to do is to, is to uh, do some minor tweaks to their planning schemes to set up a new land use um, category, a vertiport, which is, will be different to a heliport uh, and will hopefully be easier to get approvals for. So you might say with a vertiport, um, you know, you only need to be 100 metres away from uh, your nearest residence uh, because these aircraft are more acceptable. So, um, and that's, uh, you know, it doesn't cost government to do to do this. Um, the uh, FAA in the States, EASA in Europe and CASA in Australia have all released vertiport guidelines in terms of the physical structures of uh, what these vertiports should look like and what they, what they need to include. But nowhere in the world has any jurisdiction actually set out those new rules and regulations for where they can be placed within a land use you know, uh, setting in, a, in, a, in an urban environment. Um, so the first the first city that does that is going to see massive investment flowing. And um, and that's why it frustrates the hell out of me, because, um, you know, I can see that, uh, you know, my home state of Victoria could lead the way uh, if we if we just did a bit of tweaking to our, uh, our planning scheme to enable this uh, discretionary use of a of a, a vertiport and and define it as being uh, you know less uh, difficult than a helipad to get approval for. You mentioned that um, there are a number of um, codes and, and guidelines and statements. CASA obviously have already developed um, some of these and, the, and setting out the way in which the industry will operate. What types of provisions are in these codes that we know of? Um, yeah, look, the vertiport guidelines are, are really about the nuts and bolts, so the size of the... Um, uh, the size of the FATO, the, uh, uh, which is the, you know, the, the place where you land, uh, the safety areas, the, uh, uh, the markings, the lighting. Um, so all, all the sort of nuts and bolts of, of physically constructing a, a vertiport, the approach and departure um, uh, requirements. Um, so you know, there's not a lot of difference between the, those three air regulators. Um, uh, but, you know, the good thing is that, you know, it's, it's because CASA have uh, closely followed behind the states in Europe uh, with our own vertiport guidelines. I think it's uh, you know very clear that our federal government and our air regulator is basically preparing preparing Australia for this revolution. Um, so yeah, that's that's very encouraging. But uh, but I think the what's missing is is that slotting in that that nuts and bolts design of a vertiport into uh, how where are the appropriate spots to actually place these uh, um, these pieces of infrastructure. Um, Skyports, <clears throat> excuse me, has identified a, a series of sites that can be used for these aircraft. I understand you've been doing these scoping reviews of where, where they would be suitable for various criteria. Um, and, and part of your company's business is to help landowners get through that process. Is, is that about right? Uh, yeah, look, what we're doing at the moment is we've got a, a fairly broad funnel where we um, are getting um, property owners to register their sites with us. So we don't actually do a lot of work in terms of pre-registration pre, pre uh, um, 
uh, assessing sites. We're basically uh, interested in property owners who want to be part of this new industry and, uh, and knowing where their properties are and, and you know, how to contact them, uh, what the size is, what the address is, et cetera. And it may be that their site might not be suitable for a vertical, but it might be suitable for a weather station or a communications tower uh, or something like that. So, uh, so that's the first thing we're doing is just getting as many addresses as possible. Now, not all of, all of them will be suitable for um, for a vertiport, um, and uh, we're now sort of working with property developers who want to take it that next step further and perhaps want to spend a bit of money in getting uh, a site assessed. So we've got various consultants who work with uh, um, uh, you know, 270 Aviation, uh, Arup, uh, Contreras Hill Architecture, and so. We can sort of get a team together to to assess a site and come up with a design that's suitable and which we think will uh, be uh, approved. And nobody's actually gone through. We've done that with Caribbean Park, but we haven't actually gone through to a planning permit, a, a development application. Um, so, what we're really wanting is for uh, to, to find uh, you know some property developers who actually want to go that next step. And I think that will happen in the next year or so. I think um, you know the marketing benefits for uh, property developer to have a vertiport and one of the first vertiports in the world uh, on their site is going to be um, significant. Uh, it means that they can then market their, their development, whether it's a Greenfields residential subdivision or, or a shopping centre, they can say that they're vertiport ready. Um, and uh, look, and I think we may even get to the situation where vertiports are paid for for by the property developers because it's a service they're providing for their tenants or their guests. So, uh, and they recoup it, uh, the cost of that in you know, increased rents. So for example, if Chadston Shopping Centre had a vertiport, then uh, they might find they, that uh, you know, they attract more people and higher rents to their, to their retail premises. Um, so that's, how, that's sort of how I, I think it, it may pan out, uh, but um, you know, we, we don't really know. Seems like a no-brainer, particularly for shopping centres, I would imagine. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how that all plays out. Um, Clem, you mentioned earlier that obviously this industry is already starting in, in certain locations and it's certainly um, on the horizon. Where do you think we'll be at in 2040? 2040? Um, well, uh... Well, perhaps I can give give the answer in, in three, three stages. And we're actually we're actually um, our peak body. We're we're working on a document at the moment in in terms of uh, the, the how the industry will progress in in a in a probably three waves. So I think the first wave we're in at the moment, which is basically the um, uh, preparing and and uh, and the first the first sort of um, operations happening with you know, a very limited number of aircraft. And I think that we'll, we'll see that starting next year. So the Paris Olympics, and I think we'll see uh, probably in New York, uh, a, a Manhattan to JFK airport, um, and probably somewhere in Miami as well. And um, uh, so that'll be the sort of the first wave is just limited operations um, and basically replacing helicopters with uh, EV toll aircraft. Um, and then from there, I think we'll see if it all works, I think, and if uh, the uh, the politicians and the communities decide that, that they want this to happen and they want more destinations, then I think we'll see a green light for companies like mine to work with property developers to develop destinations. And, and I think that'll happen in the in the sort of coming five years. It'll be clear whether that's it's going to be a thing or not. Um, and I think once 
once that happens, I think it'll be a snowball that, that rapidly builds. And uh, and then once we've got enough vertiports to show that this is a there's a business here that that actually is viable, uh, then I think we'll find that you know, aircraft start being put into service in more locations. Um, and so, yeah, for example, I've I've been talking to a big infrastructure investor that normally invests in uh, in toll roads and things like that, and they've basically said, look, they're interested in owning the skies. They want to they want to own the vertiports so they own the skies. So if you've, you've if you've got the access to the land landing sites, you you know you control what happens in the air. And they get this, but they don't. They're looking at this saying, well, okay, well, how if I spend you know 100 million dollars on building a network of vertiports for Melbourne or Brisbane? Um, you know, how long is it going to be before you know, I start making money out of it? And the answer is that we don't know. I mean, it, it is still some way to go before we get to the point of aircraft operating scale and operating profitably. So I think there's going to have to be, in that sort of five to 10 year period, there's probably going to have to be either companies with deep deep pockets taking a punt just to own the space. And so they'll, they'll make the investment knowing that they're not going to make any money for a bit, but they want to have it as a strategic um uh, hold on on a position, um, and then uh, and then I think after that it'll become you know, uh, you know ubiquitous. I think we'll find that uh, you know it'll be clear where you can put vertiports. The community will want them or not, or or they'll decide that this is this is the type of location where we're happy for vertiports to be in. And I think once that happens and the price comes down uh, naturally over time of the you know. Uh, aircraft being produced at scale, and also potentially the pilot coming out by 2040. Um, I, I would say, you know, we're probably probably the mid 2030s. I would imagine that we'll have pilotless flight. Um, and I think that so by 2040, I, I would expect we'd have a reasonably um, mature uh, industry where um, you know people will will have this as another transport option. It's not going to replace cars. It's not going to reduce congestion. You know, this is just another transport option. Uh, which is available for um, well, will be available for people. We haven't even spoken about freight, but yeah, that's another thing: is uh, you know, freight being a um, you know, revolutionising the way we we move freight as well. I, I think you know, for our listeners, it, it's important to take a historical perspective. I mean, when were the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk? Was it nineteen oh four or something like that? Uh, yeah, it was, it was it was early nineteen hundreds. Um, I thought it was nineteen oh eight, but you you might so, be right. So, but, uh... <clears throat> so, so say, you know, um, just you know, the first plane only flew, you know, say say nineteen oh eight at I think it was Kitty Hawk, and that was a a, a few struts and a bit of um, paper basically made out of a bicycle mechanism, and look where we've come pretty quickly after they took off, Claire. I mean, do you think yeah, yeah. that historical? By, by... Yeah, by 1915, they were using aircraft as uh, as in the war, you know, uh, for, for fighting, you know, uh, biplanes for, uh, you know, in the First World War. So, you know, yeah, the 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 jumps have, have been incredible, really, um, uh, over over time, and um, and that's why and that's why this is not, I don't see this as being all that fantastical. I mean, you know, this is just, uh, you know, uh, we've already got uh, electric aircraft in the form of drones. Um, we already fly planes around, and it's really just—it's really just marrying the two, um, you know, having electric flight um, with, um, uh, you know, with a, with a different configuration, replacing helicopters with, uh, you know, a quieter, greener, greener type of aircraft. So I've just got I one. Think what's, mm, sorry. 
what's what's held it back is um is battery life and that and that will be a limiting factor for a long time i think is you, know, you won't see these aircraft used for for very long range missions and that's why some some aircraft uh, are looking at using hydrogen in fact you know, swinburne university in um, uh, victoria has just done its first hydrogen powered flight this week um, and you know we, we may see some of these aircraft powered by hydrogen we may see some hybrid power as well so you have batteries but you have a conventional fuel charger on board as well uh, to give um, you know longer range um, but uh, but yeah re really sort of battery technology is, is uh, you know taken off with cars re recently um, and as has driverless technology with cars I mean I was in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago and you know I was amazed to see these these uber cabs driving around with no drivers in them and you know they're everywhere um, and um, arguably it's easier to do driverless you know, autonomous um, uh, transport in the air than it is on roads where you've got so many so many variables to consider on the uh, as far as you know dogs and cars and people and traffic signs and everything else and whereas you know if you've got a good route to to land in a clear vertiport and then you get into the air and you and you're following you know defined uh, highways in the sky uh, uh, you know, arguably it's going to be a whole lot safer to be autonomous in the sky Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. Jess, should we move to Podcast Extra or Culture Corner? Clem, something that you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that you might think that is of interest to our listeners uh, it doesn't have to be about skyports um oh geez you put me on a spot i did read that and i i thought i'd, I'd better think of that one um, mm. do, do, do um to, i can ask jess and we can come back to you how would that be yes yes do that what was the question again it's it, it, it's it, a it, podcast extra culture corner which is something that you've read seen watched done lately that that you think might be of interest that, that our listeners might adopt Pete, Pete always has um has blade runner for context no no I, well <laughs> clem i've been trying to get and jess did do a bit of homework clem and she watched an extract of blade runner to see what i was talking about was spinners but um jess what's your podcast extra well, Pete, as you know, um, I've just had my second baby and have been on mat leave for quite a while now. So I've have you decided to give up the fags. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, I've actually taken up Italian um, because, you know, whilst my days are very busy looking after uh, two kids, there is a lot of downtime. And I was trying to think of something that I could do in that downtime besides just reading a book, um, which I've been doing a lot of as well. But uh, no, I've, I've started learning, learning Italian, which has been really, really good fun. Um, I'm using Duolingo, which is just an app, a free app that anyone can download. Um, but also um, I've been uh, learning out some books from the library um, on Italian, which has been a really nice way of doing it. So I'm doing some old school ways and, and some new school ways. Now, Jess, I was playing tennis the other night and I between matches I heard a rumour that... Uh, you you were going to come back on to the tennis court at some stage. Oh yes, yes, I'm planning on that. Planning my comeback um, in the next couple of weeks. 
So watch this space. Right. The, the <laughs> and then I'm going to take you on, Pete. We're going to have a <laughs> we're going to have a PX tennis match. Oh, you know, you'll thrash me, Jess, of course. But <laughs> um, now, Clem, what's your podcast extra? Uh, yeah, look, I suppose I've been talking about the future and technology, and I, I suppose I'm wondering whether whether people actually, uh, you know. Will it will embrace that, or, will, or whether we'll ultimately go the other way and decide you know, have, have we have we all gone a bit mad? What are, what are we doing this for? Uh, and um, you know, I, I actually uh, spend a lot of time myself uh, off grid down in Tasmania, and I've I've got some tourism um, interest down there on islands. And uh, you know the the time I spend down there is uh, is very much uh, back to nature and uh, you know, disconnected. And uh, you know I think there was an article this week in the in the paper about uh, eyesight and kids spending too long looking at tablets and phones and things and um, uh, and look you know it'd be interesting to see whether uh, you know eventually people get sick of sick of all this technology and crave for crave for something uh, more primal and uh, and connected to nature and I, and I think we're sort of seeing that in in the tourism space uh, you know the tourism offerings I've got down in Tassie are, are very much sort of marketed around um, you know, disconnecting and uh, you know, and being being sort of uh, you know at that at the mercy of the elements and uh, and 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 not not being connected to to your your daily life and um, and I think that sort of tourism is uh, you know is taking hold um, and uh, you know it'd be interesting to see whether whether it, the, the the desire to do that for a short period on a holiday uh, extends to um, extends to daily life, but. I don't know. I suspect that uh, we're all all become too uh, uh, too addicted to uh, you know the the benefits that technology can provide and the productivity that it can provide. And um, and I know that you know even even when I'm away now, I'll you know I'll use use my connections to to keep uh, connected with uh, you know what's going on in the office and uh, keeping up with emails and things. And I I suppose I justify it by saying well. This enables me to actually be in this beautiful place, and uh, and I can I can stay here longer because I can log on and do what I need to do quickly, and then log off again. Um, so I don't know, just a, a, a few random thoughts, uh, which which uh, you know are a bit of a juxtaposition of the of uh, yeah the Skyport's business, which is all about the future. Well, we've we've spoken about this a number of times, Clem, in in various different capacities, um, particularly around podcast extra. And um, it came up a lot uh, when we started talking to uh, uh, Vanessa Schoenicke, is that her surname, Pete, Um, from the Library Corporation about the move back towards traditional methods of reading, for example, and traditional Mm. methods of learning because people are craving um, getting away from technology. So I think you're you're definitely onto a winner there. Um, But I think the funny thing is with, you know, you provide these, opportunities for people to get away from technology they go down there or they go to these places without any phone reception and then they start getting withdrawal um, symptoms <laughs> not having their phone so double-edged sword I think yeah yeah and then and then you know if the, the first question people ask is you know what's the wi-fi password <laughs> so it's, absolutely um, uh, yeah it's uh, uh, it's interesting that um anyway look uh, I, I get both sides and, and I, I try to sort of uh, um, you know, have harnessed the, the the benefits and the power of technology to you know, for productivity purposes. But um, I think I also try to you know find time to 
to switch off and uh, and uh, be a bit of a caveman and uh, or cave person. Um, and uh, and I try to try to encourage the kids to do the same, but it's getting harder and harder now that they're they're all young adults. It's it's a bit harder to uh, uh, yeah say get off your phones. They they sort of um, you know don't listen to the, those sort of instructions anymore. Absolutely. And Pete, what's your podcast extra? Well, well I've got two very brief ones, Jess. One, I, I bought a new tennis racket, uh, Clem, and my game has improved by at least five percent. I need some I'm recommendations, so you'll, you'll need to send that to me. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a it's a Wilson blade. It's fantastic. But the other thing, I've been reading a great book, uh, A Rebel from the Start, by Avi Yamani, who came to my attention during the lockdowns we had Clem in Melbourne, and he reported. <clears throat> on a lot of um, a lot of the demonstrations against the lockdowns, and um, he's with Rebel News, a very controversial fellow, but he's um, written a book called A Rebel from the Start, and it's a very, very touching book because he, you know, he was a drug addict for a while, he lost his way, joined the military, got himself back together, and is now um, a reporter, and on uh, on you know with on YouTube and things like that. And it's a, it's a great book. And I love stories of redemption. Jess, I've been there many times myself. So it's always, you know, enjoy that. So Clem, thanks so much for being part of the podcast and thanks listeners for taking the time to listen to us. Um, Clem, you've given us great insight into a, a wonderful new industry. Um, so thanks well, so, so thanks much. For having, thanks for having me on. And, and as I was saying before we started, um, it's great to see the planning industry taking an interest in this because you know, this is this is all you know, the key to this whole industry is about planning and the planning industry hasn't engaged so if you're a planner out there and uh, you're interested please reach out because you know we, we actually need the industry to uh, to take a lead here and uh, it would be great if Beepler and Peer and other other organizations uh, actually engage and, and help uh, help make this happen we'll, we'll put uh, on our episode notes we'll put a link to your, your company um, and a few um, of the of the flying aircraft you mentioned, Clem. So thanks again, Clem, and thanks so much, Jess, as always. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind-the-scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.